You are our rock and you are our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's good to be back here with you guys this week. Thanks for all the well wishes and everything. Um, since I was out last week not, not feeling well, my voice still isn't 100%. I know that because I can't yell as loud at my kids as I'm used to yelling. Uh, it's a good reminder that I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of hand because I'm, I'm, I'm hitting a physical limitation, right? Okay, Nathan, maybe you need to dial it back, be a little more like Jesus to your children. This week, just as I was kind of sitting down in my study here on our campus on Monday afternoon to begin work on my sermon, Monday's a, a big sermon day for me. Monday and Tuesday are kind of my, my main days that I work on this. I received a phone call from Amber. I mean, you know, it takes you a little while to kind of get into something, you know. So I, you know, I've, I've set up everything on my computer. I'm like getting ready to kind of dive into some research and some reading. And I get a phone call from Amber. There's no explanation or context. But she let me know that she needed to fill in for a coworker last minute. And so she needed my help to watch our youngest daughter, Gwyneth. She's three for about an hour or so. So, of course, I went, but I can't say I was very happy about it. Uh, my my, my uh, confusion, right, didn't, didn't really help my attitude. I, I didn't know the situation or why I was needed. Uh, my own plans for the afternoon were frustrated. So uh, I was a bit grumpy as I locked up the office and Got in my hot car and went to respond to my wife's call. And nevertheless, I went, even though I didn't know why I was going exactly, uh, because the call was clear. And although I am really, really far from perfect, I'm vastly far from, far from perfect, and my attitude in that moment was not perfect, uh, I do love the one who made the call. And so... I responded anyways, got in the car, and, and went to go help out how I could. In today's epistle and our gospel passages, we encounter these two remarkable stories. Two giants in the Christian faith, really. Men we call today St. Peter and St. Paul. Uh, they're, they're giants of the faith. Um, these are stories of restoration, of, of transformation. We might even say conversion. They're most of all stories about responding to a call, perhaps. Responding to a call. An, an entire sermon could, of course, be preached on any of these ideas from any of these passages. And, and as usual, I probably bit off a, a bit more than I could chew. But you know what? My sermon prep time was interrupted. So, you know, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Uh, as, I, as I read these two narratives in preparation for our worship together this morning... Um, it was poignant for me as I was reading these after my own experience with Amber. I, I was struck by the profound forgiveness in both of these passages. Uh, the, the, the forgiveness of Peter, the, the total transformation in these guys' lives, the reorienting you know, of Paul's life, totally. Um, and how for each one, this newness of life is found in a call to discipleship, a call to follow the risen Christ out of love for him. 
we're called to be disciples of Jesus, right? I mean, we all know that in this room. We're, we're called to be disciples of Jesus. And many of us often say we love Jesus. We sing these songs about how much we love Jesus. But sometimes we wonder what that's supposed to look like in our time, in our life situation, in these moments. And these stories, one's kind of understated. One's incredibly dramatic. One is kind of full of this earthly physicality, and the other is full of mystical wonder. Each offers us insight on what it means to be called to and carry out a life of discipleship out of love for the one who has loved us so much. There are obvious differences in these stories, but despite those, I think there are also connections and bridges between the two that we can explore together that are so meaningful. And so I want to bring out four of those today that really stood out to me when I was reading these. The first connection that I see here is that Jesus meets both Peter and Paul right where they are, right? Physically, emotionally, spiritually, all the way around. Jesus comes to them. Much has been made, and probably rightly so, of this exchange between Jesus and Peter. The whole, do you love me? Exchange. Peter recognizes the risen Christ by this point. But his memory of also betraying this man is probably very fresh in his mind. The word for love that Jesus uses here, uh, the first two times is agape in Greek. Some of you have heard that word before. Uh, it's this kind of uh, unconditional, self-giving love. And every time Peter responds when he says, you know, I love you, he uses a different word for love, phileo, which means uh, he loves him like a brother, which is a really strong statement uh, for sure. But each time he's acknowledging, I don't, I don't love you as much as you, you would like me to. The third time, Jesus switches his own word to match Peter's. Do you phileo me, Peter? Peter responds with a yes again. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. This is the same thing he's been telling him the whole time, every time. You see, Jesus is willing to work with Peter's imperfect love. Meets him right where he is. Paul, too, it's not in the best place when he has an encounter with Jesus. In fact, he's just been persecuting the church, doing all manner of evil to the people of God. And yet, certainly he has a, some kind of zeal for God. And Christ comes to him as he is on his way to Damascus, which was a place known for its persecution of Christians. Jesus meets Paul and calls him even when he's in the middle of planning and doing terrible things, Jesus is still willing to go to him. Many of us would have given up on the denier Peter and the persecutor Paul, right? But not Jesus. He comes to them exactly where they are. And as much as they are willing, and thank God they were both very willing, he leads them out of those destructive and evil ways of thinking into lives that proclaim truth and glorify God. So he meets them where, he, where they are. He doesn't leave them where they are. Second connection between these two stories. I notice it's just the love of Christ that is directed towards both Peter and Paul. Because both of these men are, in a sense, enemies of Christ at this point. 
Yes, the exchange with Peter seems to be all about Peter's love for Jesus, but Jesus wouldn't be doing this reconciling work if he didn't love Peter. He had no obligation to Peter at all, especially after Peter denied Jesus three times in a row in his greatest time of need, his greatest moment there. And yet, it's like the simplest thing. It's something we would never consider for our enemies. He, he invites him to breakfast. Come, have, have some breakfast. He eats with Peter, which, of course, is a cultural symbol in that time of peace and reconciliation. It's almost a Eucharistic moment, having those, having those uh, fish on that charcoal fire. He loves Peter, and that's why he accepts him, even though he starts out kind of an enemy. And Jesus loves Paul, too. And the, the, the enemy part is even more drastic there, right? Like, Paul is so obsessed with the destruction of the church that we're, we're told in the story there in Acts that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciple. Like, this is his life. This is what he's breathing in and out, day in and day out. And when Jesus appears to him, he addresses him by his Hebrew name. By the way, there's no kind of connection that we know of really between the, the whole Saul and Paul thing and his conversion. It's just he had two names. He had a Hebrew name and a, and a Roman name. That was pretty common at the time. Uh, probably for, for Paul, though, the Hebrew name maybe was a little more intimate, a little more connected with his, uh, with his loyalty to the Jewish people, very connected with his family and so on. And so... So Jesus calls him by his Hebrew name twice, Saul, Saul. It could be taken as pleading almost, don't you think, to say it twice like that? It reminds me a lot of Jesus when he is, I think, very gently chastising Martha in the story of Mary and Martha. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha is all very busy bustling about. And she says, Jesus, why don't you do something about Mary? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And I, I get this sense that, that it's this pleading, gentle love. He doesn't come and say, Saul, get your act together, man. No, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Ananias, here's another guy that had a call. Dude, this guy, he just jumps in the story. We never hear about him again. He is really cautious about going to Paul, and rightly so, but he's obedient. And in fact, he's more than obedient. We don't know much about Ananias at all. Like I said, he jumps in and out. But this is the thing. He must have been walking with the Lord in profound ways to, to, to be willing to listen and be willing to follow in this way. When he gets to the right place, he lays hands on Paul, he says, Brother Saul. First words to him, Brother Saul. This, is, this guy is his enemy. And he calls him his brother. And extends the healing of Christ into his life. Gives Paul sight again. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Paul to have one of the people that he was going to hunt out with murder on his mind call him brother and then heal him. When Jesus calls someone, he meets them where they are. He doesn't leave them where they are, but he meets them where they are 
And he meets them with amazing love and tenderness. The, the third thing that jumps out to me here is the intimate relationship between the call to follow and then mission. So each call to Peter and Paul came with a mission, right? For Peter, it was to tend to the church, to feed the sheep, to teach faithfully and guard the faithful. There, there was no following Jesus for Peter without following into mission. This, and, and, and how connected that is with the love, right? It's like, do you love me? Follow me into mission. Same goes for Paul. God said to Ananias that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. And you notice, despite everything he had done before, once Paul's eyes are opened physically and metaphorically, and he realizes that this Jesus is in fact the God that he was trying to serve so zealously, he immediately, it says in the text in verse 20, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. So when Jesus calls somebody, he meets them where they are. He meets them with love. He gives them a mission. The final observation I'll make today is that for each of these disciples, this is the hard one. For each of these disciples, the call to discipleship was also a call to the cross for both of these men. Jesus told Peter when he was old, he would stretch out his hands at the time of his death like a cross. Right after that chipper statement, Jesus says, follow me. Right? And tradition has it that Peter was indeed crucified for being a Christian. So again, that the, the connection to follow, mission, cross, all out of response to the love of Christ. It's all, it's all there. God told Ananias that he was going to show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. And indeed, Paul did lose everything. Didn't he? Paul lost everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who is a, a German theologian and Nazi fighter, so pretty cool guy, um, famously said in his book, the, the Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, a call to give our very lives for the sake of this discipleship, for the sake of following this Jesus might seem kind of morbid thing to talk about. It might seem kind of depressing. It might seem rather pointless. Yet we have to remember, we can't forget, we are in Easter season. We have to remember that we are an Easter people which means that we recognize this call to die, just like Peter and Paul, is coming from the risen Christ. And so if we follow him, even to the cross, we can be sure that he will lead us through the cross and into this eternal resurrected life with him. That was the hope of Peter. That's the hope of Paul. That's the hope for you and I. And this is really freeing. For us, if we believe it. It's so freeing for those of us that, are, that are, are a lot like Peter, that are afraid of what might happen to us and our loved ones if we really identify ourselves wholly with Christ. It's really freeing for those of us that, that like Paul, are, are often afraid and maybe even hateful towards those that believe differently than, than we do. Christ calls each of us out of love for us into a way of love for him, which then leads us to love our neighbor. And see, if we believe it, it's, it's so freeing 
because we're no longer afraid of, of what will happen to us. If we believe it, it's freeing to know that God's love, listen to this, God's love is the very same, it's the very same thing as life itself. We cannot live apart from God's love. It's God's love that is sustaining us with every breath that we take. And so to be called into a life of discipleship, to be called into a life of love, where like Jesus, we will in one sense lose it all. In another sense, we have nothing to lose because we can't lose the love of God. You guys tracking with me on this? There's no doubt that discipleship is truly nothing less than a death sentence. I don't want to gloss over that. It is that in a sense. But if God loves us, he will, uh, he can't allow our lives to ever end permanently because his love's never going to end. So this is why Paul can ask in his letter to the church at Rome, this beautiful passage in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he knew that they were going to meet all of those things. But none of that could separate them from the love of God. He was so sure. He said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we find ourselves now co-heirs with Christ, we're receiving everything he's received from God the Father, including a resurrected body. What could we possibly lose in this life? that would be better than that sure promise. Nothing, right? In a sense, we'll lose everything. In a sense, we have nothing to lose. St. Peter, man, what he, what a transformation. <laughs> what a transformation, this guy. He writes in his second letter uh, 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 about, about God, about Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. <laughs> the denier Peter is now the one cling clinging to the promises of God. This is amazing. So that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Remember at the very beginning of our, of our service today, I talked just really briefly about how Jesus took our nature, right? And the whole point is so that he identifies so closely with his creation that then we get to take on the divine nature. And we're finally one together with God, union with God. This is the whole point of our existence is union with our Heavenly Father. Each one of us is called into the community of Christ, too. So none of this happened outside the community of Christ, right? Uh, Peter's there with the disciples, and his call is, of course, to feed the sheep. 
Uh, and then there's this whole uh, commissioning of Peter into the body of Christ to, to, do, uh, to serve the church. Uh, what about Paul? Paul is sent as a missionary definitely to the lost, right, to, to the Gentiles. It's all in the context of the community, though. You, you notice that uh, in, in that passage, he gets up uh, after being healed and he's baptized. What is that? That's incorporation into the body of Christ. And he's sent out in that context. It says he took some food and was strengthened. A lot of commentators, it's a little bit of speculation, but a lot of commentators think that this may be a reference even to Eucharist. That he was strengthened in the body of Christ, and then he went out with the gospel to the nations, right? So each one of us is called into the community of Christ in, in all this. And so we can remember that this good news goes with us wherever we go. And we witness to Jesus' call of discipleship to every single person as we encourage each other in the gospel. And as we faithfully follow the risen Christ in our own call, whatever that is. It's amazing to me. Like we're always coming up with all these different ways to like try to get people in the church and this and that. Um, but it seems to me, biblically at the core, it has pleased God to make more disciples primarily by our discipleship. It doesn't matter where you are in your life, where you are in your faith, your finances, your family, or anything. And I want you to know that today. Like none of that matters at all. Jesus is meeting you right here today, right where you are. Jesus is calling you, though. He's calling you to follow him. So he doesn't want to leave you where you are either. Jesus has given his life on the cross and, and defeated all of our evil, selfish, destructive attitudes and actions and affections because he wants so much more for us. He wants so much more. He wants what is best for for you. He wants to be with you. He loves you. Jesus is calling you to follow him. And so you might be thinking, okay, what about, what about the mission piece? Like, like, what does that look like? So many people that I speak to on a, on a daily basis want to know, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? Um, number one thing I always say is, like, you're not going to have to wonder about it. Right. And in, in, in nowhere in the Bible do we have like these people like just like wondering, like, oh, my gosh, what am I supposed to do? And God doesn't tell them what to do. Right. Uh, you, you may wonder for a while. You may not be sure for a while. And if, if that's the case, like, that's OK. God will tell you when, he, when he's ready to tell you. The main thing is, are you willing to follow? Are you willing to follow? That's the starting point. If you're in that spot, you're right where you need to be. You know, when Amber gave me that phone call, it was really only later that I discovered the whole point of it, that I discovered that Amber was helping somebody that was actually in profound need. Believe it or not, she wasn't just interrupting my precious sermon time to be annoying. Uh, my imperfect response, as horrible as it was, uh, played a crucial part in a work of ministry. We don't always know exactly where God's leading us or when. Sometimes we don't have the best of attitudes. Um, sometimes things are revealed in pieces over time. And sometimes the mission changes from day to day, year to year, stage of life to stage of life. But the point is, are we ready and willing to respond in the affirmative when Jesus says, follow me? What does it mean to be ready to follow? I just want to talk about this real briefly. 
because we, we tend to overcomplicate this. It just means to be on the lookout for where Jesus is and to go there. Be on the lookout for where Jesus is and go there. And the great thing is, we don't really have to guess where Jesus is. Where does Jesus promise to be in the Bible? I'm going to give you a few hints just for fun, right? Number one, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name. Jesus is going to be with his people, right? At the Last Supper, when he gave us the bread and the wine and said, this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus is found in the Holy Eucharist. What about this? When he said, whenever you give a cup of water to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me, right? So Jesus is always with the lost, the lonely, the last, and the left out. So regardless of how specific you feel your mission may or may not be, whether it's exactly uh, as specific as Peter and Paul, each one of us can start to discern our mission, just like Peter and Paul, from within the community of faith by simply asking, who do I know, who can I see that needs to see Jesus? And you lead them to where you know Jesus is, (laughs) right? Like, that's all there is to it. And this is definitely going to include like your family, your friends, your coworkers, the the people you meet in everyday life. Absolutely. It also includes those people that God will reveal to you that are perhaps being overlooked by others. Who needs to see Jesus? How can I point them to him? How can I, how can I walk with them to where Jesus is? How can I respond, even if imperfectly, right? This is, this is some kind of call to perfection. We're all going to have bad attitudes. We're all going to make mistakes, but that's not the point. This is what grace is for, people, so we can be free to follow. How can I respond, even imperfectly, with love for the God that loved me first? For the God that meets me where I am, doesn't leave me where I am. The God that meets me with love and grace and tenderness. And it gives me a mission. Let's pray. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. We need you for this work. You've given us so much already. Help us respond faithfully to the love of God the Father and his Son, Jesus. Give us courage and love enough to answer that call of discipleship to follow. And to really believe that we have nothing to lose because we've been granted all things in Christ Jesus. Amen.